You're listening to the ESPN Footy Tips AFL Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the ESPN Footy Tips AFL Podcast. Back for another week. My name is Matt Walsh and I'm joined. Jake Michaels, how are you going this afternoon? Uh, pretty good. Lots happening in the world of football, which um, seems to be, uh, you know, what we're saying every week. But uh, <laughs> I think this one takes the cake. Well, apparently footy is in crisis, Rowan Connolly. Uh, are you concerned about the way the game's looking at the moment? Oh, absolutely. I've been for some time. Um, and, you know, we're, we're big on knee-jerk reactions in footy, but I do think this one's been coming a while. And, uh, you know, that Collingwood-Richmond game might have been a bit of an overreaction, but uh, there are a couple of games on the weekend that were just diabolical. And, you know, we'll have a chat about some of the, the reasons for that. But, uh, yeah, I, I am genuinely worried about the, the future of the game and um, the sort of measures we might have to take to to make it more appealing because we're at a bit of a flashpoint in life as well as uh, sport, I think. And um, if we don't act now, I sort of fear the drop-off that might happen because, you know, I wouldn't sentence my worst enemy to watch the first half of that Melbourne-Geelong game again. That was just <laughs> the worst thing I've ever seen. We might be calling How's that this... for a podcast teaser? <laughs> <laughs> we might be calling this the, the footy in crisis episode because, look, there is a lot going on at the moment, Christian Jolly, and I'm sure you've looked at all the stats, uh, the champion data stats, and, and you're probably not thrilled with what you see either. Uh, yeah, a few, few numbers to sort of be concerned about early days. So, But, um, yeah, just hoping that football is actually continuing to be played in the next few weeks at, at any rate, given the um, way things are going at the moment this week. Exactly. Well, I mean, footy, it's in crisis again, apparently. We've, we've had former players in, in Jared Healy urging the AFL to blow it up. We had Gil yesterday come out, say, publicly, he didn't like how holding the ball is umpired. And Clarko, quote-unquote, shit-canned his own team in his press conference. So there's plenty happening on. Uh, and there's more to talk about because South Australia and Queensland have now given the AFL a bit to think about in terms of fixturing and, and the future of, of footy, as you said, Christian. Um, so we've got plenty to chat about throughout the podcast. Uh, but before we get into the serious stuff, guys, I might whip around the room quickly and, and ask you what something might have, uh, what you might have uh, seen from the weekend that will not get too much attention, especially because we've got so much serious stuff to talk, in, talk about. I reckon Toby Green. I mean, we all know how good he is, but um, and he can be a bit of a pain. But man, when he's on, he is just unbelievable. He's one of the best players in the comp, and he 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 has that ability to get to be play forward and play in the midfield. I think playing at the Giants, we talk about this a lot. Playing outside of Victoria, it's a very Victorian-centric competition. Well, it is at the moment. Who knows what's going to happen when they're all moving out of Victoria? But yeah, he's an absolute star, and just watching him again coming back and. Even in that last quarter, he almost cost them the game. But, but you just know that he can, he can just find goals out of absolutely nothing. Was he robbed of a goal of the year nomination? Did he not get a nominated for... He didn't get nominated for that, that, that one where he I, pretended I, to mark I, the I ball. Do know, I do know there's a write-in process. So hopefully that's one of the ones it is. Because that was... That was at a, the tightness of the game as well and the rarity of goals in that game. That was very... That was, yeah, that was a classic. I think you're right. Yeah, look, I, one, um, something that caught my eye, I, I was super impressed with uh, Tim English's game for the Western Bulldogs on um, Thursday night. I mean, as much for, I, I think in the last two games, he's just shown enormous strength of character for a young guy. I mean, he got absolutely smashed by Brody Grundy back in round one and then critically smashed. And then he was poor in that second game for the Bulldogs. And, um, 
lot of people saying, you know, he, he's too fragile, he needs support. Well, since then, he's had much the better of um, Sam Jacobs. And then last week up against three Ruckman, albeit, you know, not sort of elite Ruckman, but I just think his capacity in the last fortnight to come back and play really good footy uh, is a real credit to him. So that's certainly caught my eye. Christian? Yeah, I think mine's uh, a little bit nerdy, but watching the final game of the round, uh, Hawthorne Kangaroos. Um, Kangaroos almost, obviously, you know, pulled off a great comeback, but they'd kicked three of their first four goals from centre bounce clearances. Uh, dominated play for the first 10 minutes of the fourth quarter, kicked a goal. Went back to the centre bounce, they went straight out of the centre bounce, kicked their fourth goal from centre bounce clearance out of six for the match. And it was just exciting to watch. Every time they got the ball out of the centre, they looked like they were going to score a goal. So sort of watching them claw their way back in the fourth quarter, but just ultimately fall short. Um, but again, we're talking about dire straits of footy and that the, the final quarter of the round was quite enjoying to watch for me. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I mean, we'll discuss it a bit bit later, but I mean, there, there is something to be said about how close a lot of the games this round were. So um, I'm sure we'll get to that debate, but something that caught my eye that um, I thought was very strange was in that Geelong Melbourne snooze fest. Uh, I'm not too sure how many jobs on game day that trainers have. I'm sure that they've, they've got their hands full, but surely one of the jobs is picking up the cones uh, after the pre-game warm-up. And clearly someone forgot to do that from one of those teams because about two or three minutes into that game, a ball up, uh, a ball in was was about to be thrown uh, near one of the fifties there on the punt road end, and there was a, a practice cone just lying in the field of play, and a Geelong player had to pick it up and, and throw it over the the fence. So I'm not too sure what's going on down at the MC, what was going on at the MCG on Sunday, but it seems like not only the players and the fans are asleep, but the trainers as well. Hey, I, I think that's really good because we're always on at the AFL to get more in touch with grassroots footy. What's more <laughs> grassroots footy than something like that? You know, and this is, we need more of this stuff. You know, we need people coming onto the ground to hear the addresses. You know, when, when people are allowed back in the grounds, of course. Maybe that's Pretty the way to solve footy. Just keep putting a few cones in each quarter and just reducing the uh, the width of the ground to make it harder for the players. Well, frankly, I, I think more congestion. I, I, I think some of the guys playing at the moment have been having a few cones before they play. <laughs> oh dear! All right, let's get into the serious stuff. Um, it's a pretty simple question because everyone seems to be asking it: Is the game in, in crisis? Because um, Jake, your your good friend, genius coach Alistair Clarkson, has sort of moulded the news cycle this week after he sort of slammed the spectacle of his side's win. Uh, over North and Geelong's win over Melbourne as, as quote-unquote dreadful, one of your favourite words. Jake, is it really as bad as what he's saying or, you know, are, are we slightly overreacting still just because we've got so much time at home to analyse this stuff? I think a bit of both. Let's be honest, that Melbourne-Geelong game was uh, horrific. But <laughs> I, I, think it's, I think it's a little bit of an overreaction to say the game's in, in a, a dire situation. I personally don't think it's that bad. Yes, it could be better. Yes, there's things that the AFL could do but probably won't do to improve the game. But I don't think it's absolutely unwatchable. You're going to have unwatchable games, but you're also going to have really enjoyable games. And we've, we've spoken about this. We've had a lot of actual close games that have been, that have been competitive. And then you've got, to, you've got to ask yourself that question. Do you want... And, and I'm not saying every close game is a good game to watch. But would you rather watch a close game that might not be at an A-grade standard or an A-grade team demolish someone else in a blowout. So I think I don't think the game is terrible. There is a bit of congestion struggle still, and, and we've spoken about this as well, where we don't see... You know, we see teams not knowing how to attack or being too cautious now. 
but I don't think I, I, I just, I personally believe that no matter what you do, what rules you change, coaches are always going to find ways to be more defensive first because you don't want to be giving up scores. And, and that's how it's going to happen. Whether you play with less players, different, different length of quarters, different size grounds, anything is always going to come back to defence. Ron, I know you've got some strong views on this, um, but on the weekend there was a one-point result, a two-point result, a three-point result, and a four-point result. And that's the first time that's ever happened in, in the history of the game. Um, when, when you sort of look at that and then you see that there's talks of footy being in crisis, how can you look at the fact that there are still four games that are, that are thrillers? And the other ones, I mean, you know, the Gold Coast Suns were, were fine to watch again. And I don't know, how do you balance the fact that there are close games with the fact that footy is sometimes unwatchable for periods of a time? Well, it depends what your measuring stick of a good game is, I guess. And, um, you know, I, I think it's a fair argument about the closeness, but and I might be in the minority here, I would probably rather watch a game that had a, a bigger margin but was more attractive football. Because I find a lot of those games are slogs and then the last 10 minutes is interesting because it's only because it's close. Or someone in the case of North Melbourne, as Christian mentioned, finally decides to throw caution to the wind and attacks and, hey, presto, look what happens. And I think the situation... like. Christian touched on this earlier. I hope I'm not stealing your thunder here, Christian. But, you know, a few years back, we were talking about congestion. I think the problem now is more insidious and it's more that over-cautiousness with the over-caution with the use of the ball. So it's not just numbers around the ball. Though we're still getting that. We're getting this treacle slow ball movement. It's just, it's like watching paint dry. And again, you know, we you're not going to get great games all the time. And there were plenty of bad games back in the day, but I, I would bet my bottom dollar that there are more unattractive games. Now, my big fear is that the defensive ethos and the mechanisms have become so entrenched that any sort, any number of these rule changes we're talking about on their own won't be enough. So, you know, I've definitely come to the view that the only way the game is going to change fundamentally is either permanent zones or 16 aside, neither of which I think will happen because people just think they're too radical a change. So if people aren't prepared to accept that, they're going to have to be prepared to accept the brand of football we have now. And look, mate, you guys are all a fair bit younger than me. Maybe kids that grow up with the game now, that will become the norm and they're quite happy with that. I grew up in an era where footy was more open, more attacking and higher scoring. And that's what I'm wedded to. And, and I have to say, sorry to be a grumpy old fart, but the brand today overall is just a pale imitation of what it was. I've got an opinion. I'm going to throw to Christian in a sec because speaking, you mentioned it, Rowan, watching paint dry, but speaking of paint, I'd like Christian to sort of paint a picture about what footy looks like at the moment and where it's going wrong. But um, I think that the one thing that stands out for me is that you have all these, you know, pre-game radio shows or, or midweek, um, TV shows on, on the footy and they, they say, oh, watch how this team sets up defensively and, oh, Jacob Wiedering hasn't lost a one-on-one for, you know, X amount of weeks and hasn't given up a goal. And they're praising these sort of defensive aspects of the game. Uh, and they're the same people who the very next breath will sort of say, but geez, scoring's down and geez, it's an unattractive game. So, like, I know what you mean about the attractiveness of, of footy being sort of a key part of, of having people watch in general. But, um, like the, the analysis of the game is kind of there's there's also an issue there where they're encouraging these defensive um, these defensive mindsets and and look I don't mind watching defensive games of footy I think defence is an important part and 
watching a bloke kick 10 goals is probably less uh, interesting to me than, than watching a game that's, you know, finishes at 80 apiece and, and someone might kick four and have a day out. So, look, we, ha- we have different opinions, but Christian, you might have some stats as to that you can, you can put some facts out there and sort of say this is where the game is going and we can sort of make people have their own sort of judgments and, and take it from there. Yeah, so even before I get to the numbers, I think something you touched on there is probably right in terms of you sort of said what's, you know, what's wrong with footy and then you sort of talk about defensive, you know, praising the defensive efforts and then talking about lower scoring. It's, it's very similar. It's probably what it, the problem is it's not, it's not wrong with footy because the, the boring game styles that you're talking about and the unwatchable footy, it's been working for, um, you know, unfortunately, Richmond was awesome to watch and they were probably the opposite. They went blistering handball forward. The other successful teams, West Coast, Collingwood, even Hawthorne through their three-peat. Um, again, Bulldogs were probably the exception to the rule. A lot of handball. Geelong, they've been slow-moving teams. Um, a lot of kick, a lot of setup, very patient offense, and it's worked. It's got them success. So, again, while while this works for teams and it wins them games, you're just going to see it happen because that's it's as I keep saying, it's working for the teams that are doing it. Geelong, Melbourne, it became you know, over the top in that first half of how slow Geelong's ball movement was. But they've had success for 10 years being a very patient side with ball in hand. Um, can be exciting to watch, you know, when they come out of stoppages and get it their own way. But majority of the time, you know, they like to sort of set up and play offensively. So, again, it's a very good point in terms of as long as that keeps working for coaches, we're going to keep seeing it. So someone elsewhere needs to make the changes if we want to see changes in footy. So um, in terms of the numbers, so... Again, it's because of the shortened season, we're looking at, you know, lower numbers. So what we're working out is previous years were for 80 minutes of gameplay. So the average game length that everyone's talking about, 122 minutes, that's sort of um, broadcast time, if you look. Exactly. So that's 122 minutes that football is being played on your TV screen. But for the last, you know, however many years, 100 years, there's only really been 80 minutes of active football being played, the 20 minutes where time is actually ticking. So that's down to now uh, 64 this year with the 17-minute uh, uh, the quarters. So um, everything's sort of normalised by about 20, 25%. You increase these this year's numbers to compare it to previous years. So scoring's at 63.5 points per game. But to normalise that, we're up at 79.5 points per game if you if we had normal match so length. Are we being misguided by the fact that you, you look at 63 and you go, geez, that's maybe 10 goals three or nine goals not. Like that's a, it's a low score. But like you say, when you scale it up, it's, it's not a terrible score. Yeah, but Correct. Even, and even, even the, thing, the thought of the number 64, I don't, I think you've got to, you know, that, that's such a low number. Only 64 minutes is the time, you know, actually ticking and we're in play uh, where teams can actively get things done, you know, the rest of the time the ball's either in someone's hand who's pulling out their socks or it's out of bounds or it's, you know, going back to the centre and all that other stuff. So, um, again, but it, it's been a, it's a steady drop for the last three or four years of scoring. So That's we've had this conversation before. Defence is becoming, you know, the way this uh, for success. And I think every sport's been through it for, you know, the last 30, 40 years as it's become more professional, the more people have realised if we can stop scoring first or we can stop the opposition first, that's going to benefit us, our offence, and uh, that's what we're seeing. So, again, Rowan, something we've been talking about and we spoke about last week, the end-to-end ball movement. So that's down as well. It's, it's it, With the team set up, it's harder to go from your back 50 to your forward 50 in one clean chain. Um, whether that's, you know, blistering fast, at, you know, trying to get there within 20 seconds or trying to go the long way around like Collingwood and Geelong, it's getting harder no matter which way you try to do it. Um, 
And the other thing that's getting just to just on that, how far, how how down is that from say uh, again question off the off the cup? But how far down would that be from like five or ten years ago? Well, that that's that's the thing. So from five years ago, so we're down to about seventeen percent or thereabouts. Um, so that's so there's sort of two numbers out there. So there's one where you just look at the successful rebound 50 so the ones that did come out of your back line and then move through the midfield so i think i've given you those numbers rowan yeah there's another way to look at it which is sort of the number i got here it's a bit different it's every chain that starts in your back line whether you got it out of your 50 or not so it takes into account the failed ones which are happening slightly more so there's two ways to measure it are you trying to measure it once you get to the midfield or do you want to measure it starting from you know, way back in the back 50 so if we sort of look at all chains including the ones that don't even rebound it was about 21% uh, five years ago down to 17% now. So, but a steady drop every single year of 21 to 20 to 19 to 17. Well, the um, bigger, Christian, just chipping in very quickly, the bigger you gave me those stats, the one that really rang the alarm bells to me was 2005. Correct. That figure was 38%. And last year it was at 19. So that's halved. Correct. So as I said, in the last five years, it's, you know, it, it's been a problem. But if you compare it to football, what we were saying, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, which is as far back as champion data goes, unfortunately, but the numbers were one in three. One in three times you start in your back line, you go to your forward line. Yep. Um, and that, that now, coupled yeah. with the fact that last year's scores were the lowest since 1967. If those two stats don't ring people's alarm bells, I don't know what does. Correct. And so that, that leads in, the, you know, hand in hand to the thirds that I gave or was about to say sort of, so when you are inside your 450, it's getting harder to score. So your forward line is getting less potent. The ball is within scoring range, but it's getting harder to score. So again, it was going back to 2016, about 46% down to about 41.5% this year. But that goes hand in hand. So if you look at, if you start in your back 50, and get it to your forward 50, you'll score from 45% of those forward 50 entries. So quite successful, almost half of those you'll score because you're starting from the back line. If you start your chain from, the, from your centre half forward, so attacking midfield, so close to your goal, you start there and get it inside 50s, which is only maybe a 30 metre ball movement to get it within that scoring range. You only score now 32 or 33% of the time. So one in three actually results in a score. So the closer you start your chain to goal, the harder it is to score because the numbers are already there. The ball is usually, as I sort of said um, in our pre-pod meeting, for every 30 seconds to a minute that the ball's in your forward half, the harder it is for you, the less likely you are to score because everyone's down there waiting for it. Well, you, might, you might get it behind it you know, and, you know, and get lucky, or, you know. But the most likely, the most likely next team to score with the team that gets it out of that half and is open and, you know, free to run going forward. We're just not seeing that often enough now, even because when the teams do get in their back line, they're not going fast enough to take the game on. They're just they're chipping it sideways and then waiting, and then everyone's shifting back again, and we start again in someone else's half. So it's the two-pronged thing. It's, it's defences, zones, people you know flooding the area, but it's also once now teams get the ball, then they're not willing to do much with it. So there's almost two problems you've got to fix at once. But as I said, Roland, at least the stoppages have gone. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I think one of the, one of the things about, I mean, repeat in, inside fifties was a huge thing. Like the last couple of years, re getting repeat inside fifties has been such a big thing. It seems to me like there's been such an emphasis on just getting repeat inside fifties that the quality of ball going inside fifty has diminished, and maybe that's contributing to a lower conversion rate when you are starting in your forward half. Um, because when you are starting in your back half, you've got, you know, 
often your halfback flankers are your best ball users coming out of defence, and they're seeing where where the ball and where the open men are and where the the, the lanes are going to open up. Whereas if you're you know just trying to keep the ball in and, and, and you're a, a bit of a hacker in the midfield and you the ball sort of spills to you in your forward half and you're 70 from goal you're just going to put it to the top of the square again and not look for a bloke on the lead or not look for uh, an area of the, the ground where there's a bit of space for someone to run into so could it be the quality as well that the people are just so focused on keeping the ball in that the quality of, and of inside 50s and, and ball movement just isn't there anymore what's well, about yeah. midfield pressure too isn't it i mean I really noticed with uh, St Kilda against Collingwood, um, Collingwood's midfield pressure on St Kilda was such that St Kilda just couldn't get decent entries inside 50. Richmond didn't apply that same level of pressure, so they had a lot of a lot of cleaner entries inside. You know, so it's that it's that pressure. The the whole ethos of pressure, defensive pressure, all over the ground and then locking the ball inside 50, go bang, bang, bang to your score. But as Christian really effectively pointed out with those numbers, um, it's actually working against itself now. The longer you lock the ball in, the less likely you are to score. We saw this with Melbourne last year. They, they gave us a real good insight into it because they were getting 70 inside 50s a game last year and, and were barely cracking decent scores and were getting soundly beaten most weeks. So... Jeez. But again, so on the and again, good point with Melbourne. So on the flip side of that is Port. Port have struggled with that for two or three years. They've dominated inside fifty counts. This year, it's working. But they're one team that again we can sort of hang our hat on to say, footy's well, if you're looking at the repeat entry stat anyway, it's working for them because they've finally found a way to convert. And again, you know, I'm not a video expert, and I don't have the time to sit there and work out exactly who and how they're making all the decision making. But again, the, the execution and you know the stats show for Port, they are doing what teams want to try to be doing and it's working for them uh, and a great you know great point of Melbourne Melbourne dominated the correct stats that they probably wanted to last year it's just that final final step of putting it on the scoreboard that they were falling short in, and a lot of teams are this year yeah I hate to use the word fix but Rowan you sort of touched on it off the top how how would you go about fixing the issues that the AFL faces at the moment well, like I said, I'm, I'm, I've had <clears throat> everyone has their own personal hobby horse, don't they? Um, you know, some people it's band backwards kicking, some people it's rotation, some people, Clarko, it's pay more freeze. Mine, and I've been banging on about this for 10 years, was umpires call for ball ups quicker. You watch any game from the 80s, even into the 90s, you would never see more than three or four players congregate around the ball before the umpire would come in, blow the whistle and get it going again. Don't forget they had to bounce down there, not just throw it up. So that took a bit more time. But it cleared the area, and you avoid players coming around the honeypot. So I've got to say, until this year even, I would have thought, well, that's the single most effective thing you could do. But I actually now reckon it's gone past that. I reckon that backwards kicking, rotations to zero, whatever, None of those things now on their own will make enough of a difference. You've got to introduce either several together or you're going to have to be prepared to go to zones or 16 aside. And they are two measures that I don't think the football world is ready or ever will be ready to accept. So we've got a real catch-22 here. And I think, can't remember if we said this pre-show, I think we did, but it just so happens that the people that complain loudest about the state of the game, mostly are the same people that go, leave the rules alone. You can't have it both ways. If you want a more attractive game, you're going to have to be prepared to put up with some radical rule changes. If you're not prepared to cope with radical rule changes, 
accept the game we have as it is. Yeah, Jake? Spot on. Uh, I said this before we, we started that uh, no, I agree with exactly with what Rowan said. I mean, it, it is frustrating when you hear people complain about the state of the game. And look, there are things that we can do to, to make the game a little bit uh, more appealing on the eyes. But at the same time, yeah, it's, it's, it is. It's, if you want to make those drastic changes to fix, to fix the sport, and again, not having to use the word fix, but there are going to be people that don't want to do that. So you've got to accept how it is and, and move on. But I, I tend to agree. And, I, and I've, I've heard that quite a few times that the, the umpires should be balling, the, balling it up a lot quicker and avoid having 12, 12 players at a contest. And I don't know what the reason is behind it. And now that we've got, you know, when, when we've got the nominating the ruck and all this business, it just takes too much time to do it. And then you ball it up. And the other thing is maybe it's worth bouncing the ball because you get that, var- you're not getting any variance when you throw it up. The ball is going exactly straight up in the air. The bounce makes it a little bit more unpredictable. It may bounce a little bit away and you just, you just play on. It's not that's, like the centre yeah. bounce. That's a, that's a really good point, that's that good one. Point. Look, I, I can remember, this is how long ago, how long I've been going on about it. I remember uh, buttonholing Jeff Geeson one day when he was director of umpiring and saying, why won't they do this? And he's, uh, he said that because the quicker they balled it up, the more they thought there would be secondary stoppages because there was already too many players around the ball. But I said, yeah, but by letting it go, you just get more and more and more. Mm. Um, and, and now, you know, to get back to sort of the earlier point, we've now still got a, a fair degree of congestion combined with the few times the ball does get out in the open, no one will bloody move the thing on. You know, it's just, it's terrible. And not only do you get more players at the stoppage where they're balling it up, um, but you give more time for defences and forward lines to reset and restructure. So you, you don't, you want to take the time away from, all the playing groups, not just the midfield where the ball up might be, but you don't want a whole defence to be able to reset. You get on him, you get on him, move around and reshuffle everything around and get in position. You want everyone to be off guard and that's what's going to cause that quick breakneck speed of play. Could I just say one last thing? I don't know, like, because uh, I'm conscious of being so negative and the grumpy old man and all this sort of <laughs> stuff. And I appreciate that we should celebrate what's good in the game and there is still plenty of decent games. However... If we continue to sort of brush it under the carpet and just concentrate on the good stuff, it's the degree of this is going to go up and up and up. And, you know, it's people who love the game the most who I think are the most concerned about it, to be honest. And we really need to keep having this discussion, keep talking about potential solutions and finding a way. Because I swear, uh, and I see it with my own kids, we're losing them. You know, we are losing. Yeah, there's enough competition from other entertainment and other sports and other lifestyles and and you name it anyway, without our game being at the aesthetically worst it's been in my lifetime. You know, we must act about it. And, you know, I'm, I'm sorry if that sounds negative, but we're doing it because we love the game and we want it to be the greatest game in the world, which for most of my lifetime it has been. Well, before we do move on, let's touch on the, the dirty word that is zones, because I think as soon as people hear that, they, they immediately build a wall, shut it off and say, no, nah, there's no chance. We don't want to turn it into netball. It's just not going to happen. And I think that if we sort of look at 666 in a, in a, in a similar way as a small sample size of what could be done, um, but you talk about these, these faster ball ups and these faster stoppage 
um, situations. If you had to have three players inside your forward 50 and your back 50 at any one time and one player in the square, um, and, and, yeah, and you spread the field about it at, at every stoppage, and, and people are just sort of slowly moving out, I don't think it would be as noticeable as what that is. And it doesn't have to be the same three people every time. So long as you have a certain number of people, any people, a certain number of people inside a back 50 and a front 50 at every stoppage, I don't think it's going to be noticed by the general public after a while and, and the game will spread more because players are spread across the field more. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. It's the word zones that freaks everyone out. If they called it, I don't know, cabbages and did that, <laughs> people probably wouldn't say boo. I, I'm firmly of the belief that if people were prepared to at least watch a game under those conditions and see what could eventuate, they would soon go, you know what? This is actually working. Um, I, I understand it's a radical change, but I think that's how big the problem has become, that it needs radical surgery. So, you know, for the love of God, please, AFL, try this in some format, scratch matches or a training or whatever, but give it a try. You know, what have we got to lose by trying it? Mm. So, two points we the one on zones. So... Again, I've always been of the belief that if you bring it in, and again, going back to your point earlier about slower ball-ups and that, I don't like the idea of it just coming in at stoppage. I don't like the idea. I'm not all four zones at all, but I'm just saying if we did bring it in, you can't just bring it in for the stoppages because if players are allowed to randomly go wherever they want and then we have to wait because they're going to all debate on... It's going to slow everything down, down yeah. Time, you know, so... Yeah. Well, no, no, no. If, if there are three people, three people need to be in a zone... Or three, if a certain number of people need to be in a zone for every stoppage then those players are going to be more likely to stay in that area so that when a stoppage occurs and before the ball up occurs, they're going to be in that zone already. So it's not like you're going to have 36 players around the ball and then they're going to disperse. It's almost like the soccer offside rules because if if my man leaves, I'm going to go with my man anyway because they can't penalise both of us. So, you know, if we're both outside the forward 50, then they're just going to, the umpire's just going to wait for both of them to get back and whether we're just going to see foot races to see who gets back to the back 50 first to say, okay, he's the last out. There are challenges. But it it doesn't, to me, I see a lot of problems with it if it's just that stoppage is because of that fact that the rest of the time, the two seconds, three seconds before the stoppage was called, when you didn't know it was going to be called because someone had taken a mark, but it was called, touched off the boot and he was tackled and now we've got a ball up. We're now waiting 10, 15 seconds to, for six players to run 40 metres back to the back 50. So, uh, to me, again, if they're going to bring it in, and it may, you know, I, who knows if they've thought about it, maybe the, you know, the, the problem with bringing it in is that we have to go the full hog. You have to bring in zones for all of play for it to actually be effective and work the whole time, or else it's just going to slow a different part of the game down. Same as if it's just from a behind kick-in. Everyone has to be in a certain zone. Same thing. Ball goes through for a score, um, you know, Scoring from a kick-in is rare enough anyway, but from a faster kick-in, you're probably slightly more likely to score if it's, you know, um, you can get the ball moving quickly out of there. So, yeah, I think zones, you have to go the full hog um, and bring it in, you know, for the whole of play. And two, Rowan, again, yeah, scratch matches, practice matches, pre-season, it's great. But we, again, if football's in that um, bad of a situation, they want to make changes, I think you just have to bite the bullet and bring it in. To I don't think scratch matches and pre-season help. Um, oh, just to look at it initially. Yeah, but can but I just say I, I agree entirely with what you just said. Let me stress, I'm I'm advocating it for the duration of the game, not just stoppages. Because one of my big annoyances about six 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 
was the moment they announced that, I said, this isn't going to work. And there's a very obvious reason it wasn't going to work because each centre bounce occupies, what, 10 seconds. So that was only in effect for, say, an average game, 24 goals plus one to start the game. 25 times 10 is 250 seconds, four minutes and 10 seconds of a 120 game. What sort of impact is that going to have? And that's precisely how it panned out. Now, I'm advocating permanent zones for the duration of the game, stoppage or not. There we go. Um, look, plenty to think about. And I'm sure the AFL is working hard to, to sort of, again, I hate to use the word fix, but come up with some solutions to make the game a more attractive uh, uh, TV product, because uh, well, it is a TV product at the moment. So we'll keep an eye on that. But we probably should move on. Christian, um, I know you've got some other stats that you'd like to raise from the weekend, specific players you've got in mind or teams. I know that you had a look at Richmond and obviously their struggles at the moment. What, what can you tell us about them? Yeah, no, I'll start with some... Oh, okay, we'll start with Richmond. I was going to start with the players. We'll, <laughs> you start wherever you like. So, no, just interesting with Richmond. I mean, we, we did touch on it last week, but just their inability to sort of score uh, once inside 50. And, again, we look at percentage of where your scores start from. Only 7% of their scores are started from their forward 50 chain. So, they, they've, you know, they, they're winning the ball. They've got, you know, a few, you know, they're low for stoppages in their forward 50, but they're not last. Um, they're, I think, top five for actual, you know, forward half intercepts. So, locking the ball in their forward half, winning it back. It's just, again, it's, it's all conversion for Richmond. So, if you're talking about um, fixes to a team, I, to me personally, I always think that's the smallest fix because everything else seems to be working slightly for them. It's just, again, they can't do that final step and put it on the scoreboard. Um, but another sort of one that I looked at that does worry me is um, looking at their opposition and three goal streaks against. Richmond have conceded eight different three goal streaks against them this year, which is the most of any team. So they're not just sort of, um, you know, floundering themselves in their front half. They're letting teams get run-ons with them. And even we saw with Carlton, who, you know, didn't really get close in the end, but even Carlton dominated for... 40, 50 minutes of that round one game that lost to Richmond. So, to Do you me, count Richmond, four goals in a row as two separate three-goal streaks? Um, no. So that'll be, yeah, that's sort of just counted as one. So, wow. uh, yeah, more than... That's interesting. Yeah, so you go over five and that's when it starts overlapping and things like that. But, yeah, right. eight in, you know, in their first four weeks. Again, it's almost um, teams are doing to Richmond what Richmond did to other teams. Like, you know, there's so many mm. games over the last two years where Richmond have sort of you know, toyed with the team. It's been two or three goals for a while and then Richmond just go bang and kick four goals in a row and the game's mm-hmm. over. Um, again, you know, we're talking about a team that's only, you know, that still sits uh, with only two losses for the season, but that was probably the one that stood out to me. Um, another team's one, looking at uh, quarters one is always a good indication as well for sort of how teams are travelling as well as percentage. Um, sorts of two underrated numbers, I think. Um, but yeah, for quarters one this year, Port Adelaide's on 11. Carlton's actually second with nine quarters won uh, from their first 12 games. So, uh, from their Top first quarters. 12 quarters. So, yeah, and St Kilda's third with eight. So, uh, Thursday night, obviously, with the um, reshuffling of the uh, fixture, we've got second versus third of uh, the quarters ladder going up head to head against each other. But again, anyway, yeah, Carlton, Carlton, again, have had some bad periods in games, but, you know, overall doing, you know, quite well. Um, and, you know, that's that's a sort of, um, again, again, a good indicator to look at of how you're travelling across a match. Um, and St Kilda, yeah, another team that's probably, you know, people are sort of watching and trying to get a figure on how, how good are St Kilda. I think that's one good number to show that they're actually, yeah, doing quite well across games. Have you got the bottom end of that, that table? Uh, yeah, so Adelaide was right at the bottom. 
Um, How many have they won? So they've won. Have they won a quarter? No, sorry, <laughs> sorry. I correct myself. West Coast are actually on three. Adelaide are four. Um, wow. Melbourne five. Been Essendon five. But again, they've played four less quarters than everyone else. But yeah, um, I was surprised to see that. That was did surprise me. Adelaide winning four quarters this year. But then I remembered. I think they won. Um, again, they smashed uh, Sydney. I think in the first quarter, and they did quite well in. Somehow in that third quarter, was it against Brisbane? That they, that mm. first half, they just looked deplorable and didn't look like, I thought it was going to be embarrassing. It didn't look like their head was in the game at all. And then that third quarter, they actually uh, came out and did all right. Um, but yeah, just like talking about some of the player stuff. So Tim English, great that you brought him up sort of at the start of the podcast role. And so you're sort of right. Um, he's sort of in the, you know, his ruck work's still not the greatest. He's still not winning a hit out often. He's probably starting to negate the opposition ruckman a little bit more uh, in the last couple of weeks, which is good. But it's around the ground stuff. So he's actually third in the comp for intercept marks, so getting behind the ball um, and intercept possession. So the top, you know, the top two are Nick Haynes and Sam Collins from GWS and Gold Coast, two full backs. But um, he, Tim English is up there with Darcy Moore, David Asprey, Harris Andrews, and, you know, players like that. So what he's actually doing behind the players impress me um, watching the Bulldogs the last few weeks. He could um, make a Ben McAvoy move later Correct. Without actually, well, yeah, well, still playing in the ruck though. So they haven't actually, he's, yeah, he's got Ben McAvoy like numbers playing in the ruck. And another player for me that sort of um, has caught my eye the last few weeks, Chad Wingard, um, has just looked, yeah, superb for Hawthorne. Um, kicked three goals in three of the games this year. In the game that he was scoreless, he had three score assists. So he's just hitting the scoreboard. So, He's actually third in the comp. He's been involved in 38% of Hawthorne scores, which is uh, third in the comp. So Michael Walters has been involved in 45% of Frio scores, so he's going quite well as well. Liam Ryan at West Coast is 39%. uh, And then Wingard. But it's also Wingard's delivery inside 50. So he's sort of got the best retention rate for kicking inside 50 with 83% at the moment. Uh, Comp average is about 47%. So if you're a Hawthorne forward and you see... Wingard running with the ball across um, centre half forward, you'd be pretty excited. So, um, and looking he's at looking him, dangerous again, Wingard, isn't he? Yeah, uh, I think last a... year didn't really notice him that much. But well, he's... you add you add him to. I was just thinking, you've got three Hawthorne guys who, when they reproduce their best, now you sort of think, gee, they're a really good player, aren't they? He's one of them. The other two are O'Meara and Scully. You know, if you get those three all playing at the best they showed at other clubs, geez, you've got some serious talent. Yeah, yeah. And so looking at Wingard, I mean, there's two midfielders. So he's a midfield. So looking at all the midfielders, midfielders, wingers, they also are the ones that, you know, accumulate the ball. There's only two that are elite for goals and metres gain. So, you know, getting the ball, getting it moving and then finishing it off as well. And that's him and Lockie Neal. So, again, I'd put Chad Wingard up there as a smoky for a Brownlow watch early. You know, he'd have to have some big games to be noticed. But, um, yeah, sort of what he's doing, you know, can't compare to sort of the... Uh, Quantity of numbers as Lockie Neal. You know, he's not getting the 30 touches like Lockie Neal, but he's certainly having the same impact. So, someone to keep your eye on. And another one, um, shame that Neal's not on today, but Ed Langdon being a, you know, <laughs> doing exactly what... So, we were talking about Melbourne last year, and his name was thrown up, I think, by round 18, round 19. During the season, I think Ed Langdon had been linked to a move to Melbourne. And um, even Neil was speaking about it. They wanted that outside run. So, again... Um, looking at averages because they've played one fewer game than the rest of the team. But for the first three games for Melbourne, he's second in the comp for uncontested possessions per game and number one for handball received. So, again, one of those recruits that's doing exactly what he was recruited to do is, you know, he's 
His uh, ball use is, you know, slightly above the average. So it's not elite or anything great. But again, he's getting the bulk of it on the outside and, um, you know, getting being a target for Oliver, Brayshaw, Viney to sort of fire it out to. So, again, just sort of a um, heads up to him for and, you know, keeping an eye on him for contributing exactly what they uh, asked him to contribute at that team. Very good. Uh, well, look, all these stats are... They're almost meaningless if we, we don't have a full and complete AFL season. And we're in sort of, at the moment, we're in flux because South Australia has just joined Queensland uh, in announcing further restrictions on, on teams coming in and out of Victoria. Um, the, the, the news on uh, Tuesday, which is today, is that clubs will have to spend 14 days in isolation uh, if they come from Victoria and if they're a South Australian team uh, coming back from Victoria. And that's that's in line with what Queensland announced on Monday. So um, the AFL has got a few more challenges ahead of it. Uh, and it kind of leaves the season in a bit of a precarious position. Uh, Jake, are we looking at an asterisk year potentially if, if things continue to sort of go downhill? Well, I was a big believer that we weren't looking at an asterisk year uh, when, when we had all the, the initial reshuffle, the 17 game uh, season, everyone plays each other once. I know there were a lot of people saying this isn't going to be a normal year. Of course it's not, but 20 years down the track, we'll see the premier and we won't, we won't look and think, Oh, that was an asterisk year, but it's starting to get to the point now where we've, where we're seeing games postponed, fixtures shuffled around, players not being able to play border closures, teams moving hubs. I think there's just too many moving parts that it's really hard to see an end. It's really hard to see how this year is going to end and, and get to, I think there's still 120 odd games to go before the grand final. I mean, it's really hard to see how that's going to all come, come together. So I'm not sure it's going to be an asterisk year. I'm just not sure how we're going to get from where we are now to the end. And now we probably shouldn't speculate on it too much today because, as you said, this is very fluid. This is changing every hour. So um, I think from a from a competition standpoint, it's it's really difficult. And and there's no they're never going to shut up shop and say, look, let's just finish the season. But it's getting to the point where you start to wonder, yeah, how how will it ever get done? Well, you know, I mean, I, I wouldn't even be as confident as to say they won't shut up shop and pull a pin on the season because, the, you know, each time something like this happens, it just takes away another um, logistical possibility, doesn't it? You know, the options become narrower and narrower. And if we're getting to a point where, um, you know, say they suspend the season for a few weeks so they do have more flexibility, then we start again. Then do we start running out of time for everyone to play even everyone once? Then if you get below, say they reduce it to, I don't know, 15 or 14 games, you know, you, you're just over half a normal season. Is that too much to constitute a season that people would, would take seriously? I, look, I'm like you, Jake. I, I thought if everyone, even with 17, I mean, we did have a 20-game season in 93. I thought, you know, if everyone can play everyone once at least, yeah, I'm, I'm happy with that, even though you've got the hubs and different sort of playing fields for different sides. But the more impositions that are placed on the season, and particularly, too, the later it goes, I, I, I really, no matter how even the playing field was, I would really struggle to take seriously a season that had a, a grand final in December or something. You know, yeah. I mean, that's just ridiculous. And then you're impacting the following season as well. I mean, it's yeah. all, everything's going to... You don't want to try everything to get this year in at, at the 
at the cost that it'll be potentially an asterisk year to then jeopardise 2021. And well, I think that's not, the problem. Yeah, not only that too. I mean, uh, think about like uh, AFL trade radio, if they compromise the draft, you know, I know there's a lot of people now for whom the draft is more important than the actual season. So they'll be wetting themselves with, uh, with anxiety. No, I'm, I'm being a bit flippant there, but it, it's, yeah, look, each of these things makes it logistically more difficult. And um, we're at a real flashpoint. I reckon we get one or two more of these things uh, and the season shuts down for another few weeks or whatever. And I'm certainly personally at that I don't care anymore stage. That's not a great thing to say on a footy podcast, is it? But, <laughs> well, I've been in contact well, we should with have, We should have who... had about, I was going to say, we should have had about 14 rounds by now. Yeah. Uh, we've had four. So, I mean... If, as you say, if we get another couple of weeks where we don't get anything, we're really, really on the back foot. And, and you can only shorten the season so much. What are you going to do? Shorten it to 12 or 13 games? It just doesn't work. Uh, and I, I think the fans are going to see right through it. The fans are already seeing right through it and, and having less interest because they see it as a cheapened year. What's going to happen if you take another six games out and have to move teams around the country? It's... I don't see it working at all. There's no doubt about it. I, I, look, I've got to say, again, just personal observation, but I've really noticed this, the reaction of different club supporters to losses or wins or whatever. Just so many people I see on social media saying, you know, I just can't get excited or I'm not as disappointed. And, um, you know, I, bigger picture again. I, I think people have really reprioritised their lives during this pandemic. And... Football, for a lot of them, is ceasing to be as important as it was. Um, and, you know, I don't want that to sound dramatic, but, you know, perhaps we'll, when, when this thing ends and the economic ramifications of it are over, we get back to a point where we can enjoy it and invest ourselves in it to the extent we did. But I think a lot of people right now, even if the games were more attractive or whatever, they just can't find the emotional energy to be as upset or overjoyed with it than, as they usually are. You say that, Ron. I'll, I'll remind, I'll remind me to send you a link to a, a video I posted to my Twitter yesterday of a, an Essendon fan watching that last I saw it. Townsend. Mate, mate I, thought, I thought you'd snuck into my house and film me, to be honest, because <laughs> that shot from behind Jacob Townsend, the kick was straight as a die. It looked good. <laughs> I was all set to spring out of my chair and then I saw, uh, it wasn't William James's bloody nonce getting away. Uh, if you uh, haven't seen the video, check it out on my Twitter at Matt Walsh Media. It's actually quite, quite entertaining. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I know of one team that is preparing to, that hasn't been named as going to a hub. I know that one team is, is prepared for the call to come that Darwin is definitely an option. So I think the AFL is exploring the fact that um, teams might be getting out of Victoria very quickly. Uh, and if you can get a few teams to, to a hub quickly and, and like some go to Perth and then some go to, to Darwin, for instance, and, and maybe even Tasmania. Uh, and then you can sort of play in six-week blocks uh, amongst yourselves. Maybe we can continue to, to, to sort of squeeze the best out of this season. Um, but, I mean, as you say, guys, with every day that, that something new sort of pops up, it's becoming less and less likely. And we can only hope as footy fans that, it, that we can get a full season through and a, and a premiere and we won't look back and think, what a waste of a year. Um, we're going to move on to our next segment. We, we've liked this one in the last few weeks, Justified Hype or Hyperbole, where we ask a few questions of, of the table and, and we basically just debate whether it's fair enough or if uh, it's a bit of a knee-jerk reaction. And I saw this tweet uh, on the weekend from Mark Stevens from, from Seven, 
And he said that fixture box boss Travis Auld has, quote, the toughest job in Australia, quote, right now. Is this a justified hype or hyperbole, Rowan? Uh, hyperbole for me. I would have thought, and don't get me wrong, I, I think he, he has done a great job, but I think Dan Andrews right at the moment has probably got the toughest job in Australia. Jake? Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, a little bit over the top. <laughs> Christian? Yeah, a little bit of tunnel vision there. It's, uh, yeah, it's bigger than footy at the moment. Come on, Steve-O. You can do better than that. Um, Jake, Matt Rowe can win the Brownlow. He's now at $8. Three straight 10 votes in the Coaches Association. Can he win it? Well, he can. Anyone can win it. Will he win it? Probably not. But uh, if you look at the odds, as I think we spoke last week, and I think he was the eighth or ninth favourite. He's now the third favourite, which is just incredible when you think about it. Um, in a shortened season, you know, nine votes in a shortened season, you, pro- you could probably potentially get the medal with, with 20 votes this year. Who knows? So he might be halfway there already. So, so he's a chance. He's a big chance. I think it's justified. I'm, I'm with Jake. I think it's justified too. I definitely have him in the calculations. I mean, again, you can. You, it's, I'm not the biggest advocate for the Brownlow just because you, you know, for predicting the Brownlow anyway, because it's all up to the umpires. It's not up to some measurement system that we can figure out. So it's up to whoever's you know working on the day and who they give it to. So hopefully they've noticed him, but he has been one of the you know top five players in the competition to start the first four rounds. So definitely has to be in the calculations. And he's a midfielder, so they win him. I'm going, techni- I'm going at technicality here. I'm, I'm saying it's justified, but only because you've said Matt Rowell can win it. Well, yeah, he can. <laughs> yeah, Kyle Langford can win the Brownlow too. I mean, Poorly he won't. Worded. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I think he can too. And I think it's because you're right, Christian. Um, you kind of need to be noticed by the umpires and you need to have either a breakout year or there needs to be something about you. And that red hair with that grown man's body, I think is just enough for him to have his 20 touches and two goals, and the umpires will say, yep, that's a three-vote performance. So, geez, he's looking good at the moment. Uh, next question. Christian, I'll throw to, you, throw to you on this one. Sam Doherty is the best halfback flank in the league. Is that justified hype or hyperbole? Um, well, currently four games in, it might be justified hype. Again, it's uh, Shannon Hearn. It, it depends on what you're looking at. Shannon Hearn over, you know, four or five years has to be up there. And then Jeremy Howe was, um, you know, Blooming large as well. But Sam Doherty at the moment, number one for effective metres gain. Number one for metres gain in the competition as well as effective metres gain. So whichever way you look at it. But again, I had to double check myself. Just to, again, just the um, the length of you know time between round one and two this year sort of threw me out. But sort of forgot. I knew he had two years off with injury. But I'm like, is this his first year back or did he come back last year? Just because round one feels so long ago now. But he, again, just to you know restate it, he's four games back from two years off in the game. Um, already doing what he, you know, finished off doing in 2016, 15, when he was, you know, again, we had him as one of our top five ranked players for distributing across that half back line. Um, and again, getting the ball moving, but he's also, you know, he's, he's good defensively. He, he doesn't quite, you know, doesn't get beaten off in one-on-ones and, um, yeah, he sort of, you know, puts his body on the line in the air as a third man in with a lot of the spoils. So, uh, justified hype. I think he'd have to be one of the top three. Jake? Yeah, agreed. Uh, I don't. I think you know there might be one or two that are on par or maybe slightly better, but I don't think um, I don't really think um, he's far behind. If that's the case, and and as you say, he hasn't played for a number of years. So if he had have played consistently throughout, I mean, who knows how many All Australian 
selections he would have had by now. So I'm going justified. Rowan, the Bowen's got a first-hand look at him uh, on the weekend. What did you think? Oh, he always rips Essendon apart. I don't know why Essendon refused to play anyone on him, to be honest. But um, I don't know know if I'm being overly pedantic, but I I have to say hyperbole because I don't think he's the best. I would certainly put him in the top three like the other guys. But for me, right at the moment, I probably have either a, a Whitfield or a Hooley. I think Hawley's been pretty reasonable for Richmond, even when they've been poor. Um, uh, I really like how he plays his footy. And Whitfield's a, a silky user. But, um, yeah, look, I mean, that's not the purpose of the question. He's definitely in the top three halfback flankers. So somewhere between hype and hyperbole. Sorry. Uh, yeah, hype or hyperbole. Yeah. Um, so Scott Pendlebury plays game 306 this weekend, which will draw him level for second all-time at the Pies with Gordon Coventry. Is it time we started having the discussion? Actually, I'll, I'll, I'll make the question a bit more straightforward. Is Scott Pendlebury Collingwood's greatest player of all time, boys? Well, it's so difficult to say because, you know, I wasn't watching in the 50s and the 60s and the 40s and the 70s, but it's very hard to look at what he's done as a player, as a captain of that club. Uh, and I personally think he's he's just about the most consistent A-grade player I've ever seen. I think Christian mentioned Gary Ablett. Yeah, I think those two pretty comfortably. Um, but he's got to be in the conversation for Collingwood's best. And not only that, I think he's got to be in the conversation for the best ever player to never win a Brownlow medal. We talk about Lee Matthews, but Nathan he's Buckley. right up there, in my opinion. I'd look, certainly top... Five. Geez, they've had some great players, though. I mean, look, I know just talking to a lot of older people who are around in the 50s, you know, there are a lot of people who would swear um, that Bob Rose was the greatest Collingwood player. I must admit, look, I'm I'm big one for numbers. And Gordon Coventry, I'm just having a look now, but you're talking about a guy that played for 18 seasons, <laughs> had the all-time goal-kicking record for a good... 70 years, 1,299 goals, you know, back in that era when, when scores were lower. Geez, pretty hard. And, and playing in all those Collingwood premierships, pretty hard to beat that, I would have thought. But um, Pendles, and no, I didn't see Coventry play. I'm not quite that old. But uh, Pendles, certainly in that upper echelon, no doubt. Christian? Uh, again, probably no idea up there as a modern day great, but again, from uh, you know all the names you've heard for Collingwood, you know, again, I know um, Coventry's up there, and then there's the Colliers as well, Rowan, and you know, again, they those Collingwood teams from the twenties and thirties winning four to eight in a row. How good were those players compared to professional footballers going against eight hundred and sixteen other professional footballers um, across the competition? That's that's the hardest thing to judge. So, but again, he's you know, go back to sort of last year's pod and I'll pump myself up again. I had him as, you know, one of the best players of modern times because of that consistency, because of that. He produces the same thing every single week, uh, every single year. So, yeah, definitely one of their greats. Maybe the question should be, is he the greatest Collingwood player that we've ever seen? And forget forget what we haven't seen because we can't... Uh, Well, let's let's remould it quickly. We've got a little bit of time. Is he better than Buckley? I think he's... Oh, geez, that's a tough question. <laughs> it's a tough question, question isn't it? <laughs> that, is, that is such a tough question. I just love how smart... He's just about the smartest player I've ever seen. One of the best ball users 
I mean, I, I hate when people say, oh, he finds time. Yeah, I mean, how many times can we say that? But his footy smarts, his ability to bring players into the game and his skills with, with, with his feet and his hands, he's just a very clever and consistent player. And you just don't see, you don't see those two together. You generally see the really skilled players inconsistent. He's the opposite. He's ultra skilled and ultra consistent. I'll say, I'll say this. I, I reckon Buckley probably more explosive. Pendles more mm. graceful, but I, I might even give Pendles the points fractionally over Bucks for that ultra consistency. And just one more on Coventry, Christian. I've checked the numbers from the twenties and thirties, and the transition rates from the D fifty <laughs> line were heaps better. <laughs> I was going to say, he, he kicked 1299. I imagine he played with Pendlebury. He might have kicked 4,000. Yeah. Pendlebury coming out of the midfield. So we didn't see their midfielders then. Yeah. Um, but in terms of Buckley, again, as a kid, um, you know, Buckley was around when I was much younger. I, I put Buckley, Buckley slightly ahead of Pendlebury, not because I compare, compare how they play football, but Buckley had that aura about him. He was, I mean, Pendlebury's a leader, he's a captain, he's great, but Buckley was one that, you know, was um, one of those ones that was overtly obvious he was carrying his team over the line some weeks and doing the, you know, the um, inspirational things where I think, as Jake said, what Pendlebury does is just the same thing. He just churns out consistent stuff each week, whereas, yeah, I think Buckley had more heroic acts, so he might be slightly ahead for me. Could be a question when he revisit down the track because the way the Pendlebury's going, he could probably play another couple of years. Um, so who well, that's knows? the thing. He's not finished yet. Uh, exactly right. Hey, let's wrap it up. We've uh, run a little bit over time. Guys, thanks for joining me again. Don't forget to get your, your tips in on the Footy Tips app. Uh, Thursday night footy again this week, so make sure those are in before Thursday. I forgot last week and I'm paying for it, unfortunately. Guys, thanks for joining me. We'll speak with you again next week. Uh, until then. Thanks for listening to the ESPN Footy Tips AFL podcast.